Hello and welcome to Audio Evidence. I'm your host, Nacho J. Palmieri. Audio Evidence is an archive of diverse soundscapes. This audio series is inspired by the life's work of my mother, Chiori Santiago. Volume 1 of Audio Evidence features excerpts of dialogue by Angela Davis speaking live at the Sanctuary Auditorium, First Corinthian Baptist Church of Harlem in New York City on September 26, 2018. The public event began with a film showing of Mountains That Take Wing, Angela Davis and Yuri Kochiyama. And so Angela goes on to highlight her relationship with Yuri Kochiyama and her admiration for Yuri's passion and achievements as a freedom fighter. Professor Davis continues the dialogue by focusing on the insight and potential of women of color as agents of change, the role of movements, the gender divisions therein, the issues we continue to face along with the importance of intersectional analysis, as well as contrasting movement eras and lessons of the past with contemporary ones. The rest of this episode is sprinkled with rhythmic notes provided by musicians on the New York City subways, as well as a beat called Being Human, as recorded in Khartoum, Sudan. There is some dynamic range in audio levels, specifically when the cello sections enter, but the audio shock is likened to being on the actual subway. This inaugural episode is dedicated to the life and memory of Toni Morrison. Please enjoy. and people who appear to be Muslims would be treated. And that came from the experience of the camps. Uh, so to me, that's, that's um, having real political impulses. And you know, it's not about necessarily about being a member of an organization or knowing exactly how to formulate uh, a political line. It's about understanding that we can all come together and change the world. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
<laughs> Being human. Oh. oh wow. This is deep. This is deep. I don't know how to Oh shit. that she never got to experience this period, to see uh, the ways in which her, her work uh, has led to, to major changes. Uh, um, and you know, oftentimes when one speaks about the Me Too movement, um, one forgets that, one forgets the role that women of color played. Uh, one forgets that, uh, uh, someone like Rosa Parks, who we all know as the woman who refused to move to the back of the bus, right? Uh, we don't know that she was um, um, what you might call a sex crimes investigator, that she investigated gang rapes by the Ku Klux Klan in uh, in. Montgomery and rural Alabama uh, on behalf of the NAACP in the 1940s. Uh, women have always been the ones who organize movements. I'm sorry. People aren't even aware of the fact that the majority of the members of the Black Panther Party were women. They were the ones who kept the movement going. Uh, and of course the civil rights movement before that, if it had not been for the women and um, for uh, women who were domestic workers, who were maids. Uh, and oftentimes we don't, we don't think seriously enough about the collective part that um, people like the domestic workers in Montgomery play. Um, the Montgomery bus boycott, which was successful in 1955, almost the entire year of 1955, would not have been successful if people, had, women, had not refused to take the bus to work because those were the, the black people who took the bus mostly. They took the bus to go from you know, our neighborhoods over to the neighborhoods of the rich white folks. To, clean their houses and, and, and wash their dishes and uh, you know, cook their food. And so that, that first catalyst for uh, change in the mid 20th century would never have happened if it hadn't been for, for those women. We have to figure out, I mean, I, I've always talked about this and, I, and, I, and, and it's still a challenge. We have to figure out how to honor those whose names we do not know. Mm -hmm. uh, and the problem is most of the names are attached to men. Right. 
And I mean, it's great. Malcolm X was amazing, and we and we we need to honor him. But let's not forget that movements don't happen because of single individuals. Yeah. Individuals can emerge as powerful spokespersons. That was the case with Dr. King. It was certainly the case with with Malcolm X. Uh, but without the organizing, and the organizing is usually done by women. I mean, that's the gender division of labor in the movement. Uh, without the organizing, it, it, it's not gonna happen. You know, I think that, um, I think that the, the, the role of movements, if one looks at uh, how movements create change, you know, change in, in the institutional structure, change in the discourses, uh, um, it, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, although I, I, I must admit that uh, when we began to talk about prison abolition and people assume that it, this was this absolutely insane idea. You can't be serious, you know, talking about prison abolition. This was, uh, you know, maybe 20 years ago. Uh, it was actually quite remarkable that within a relatively short period of time, and I'm saying short, uh, 10, 15, 20 years, that uh, abolition has become a serious topic that people are engaging with uh, the, the notion that we can't simply reform these institutions. We can't simply reform uh, prisons. We can't simply reform the police. You know, we can't, simply, we can't simply try to weed out all of the bad seeds from the police. Because the structure itself is racist. Racism is embedded in the apparatus. So it has taken us a long time to get to the point where this makes sense. And I'm talking about in terms of um, popular understanding, a popular discourse. Uh, because there, as I said before, 20 years ago, we talked about abolition and it was like, are you serious? Abolition? Well, what are we gonna do if there are no uh, prisons? How, how will we feel secure and safe? How will we feel? How will we feel secure without police? But the thing is, security that is guaranteed by violence is not security. It's just more violence. It just replicates the opposite of, of security. So I think that um, you know maybe there's some changes in the liberal discourse. But what is most exciting to me is that people are beginning to um, imagine new forms of justice, uh, new forms of security. And this is, this is what young people are doing. The you know, Black Lives Matter movement, uh, uh, which uh, is still very much a powerful influence. Uh, you know, people often think, um, well, 
we don't hear that much from uh, Black Lives Matter right now. Uh, and so the movement must have uh, disappeared. But you know, movements require reflection and organizing. And you're not always engaged in dramatic events out front. If you were always out there demonstrating, you would never have time to think about why you're demonstrating and what kind of world you want and what kind of changes you want. So I think that's the, to me, that's the most exciting development. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what it's all about, to try to imagine um, ways of uh, addressing all of the, the, the issues uh, we uh, face. Now, the, the most pandemic form of violence in the world is gender violence. And, and, and Yuri was really uh, prescient in, in talking about uh, the comfort women and the importance of uh, supporting their campaign for um, for uh, reparations, uh, but what, it, it's, it's, it's interesting that when we talk about violence, somehow um, we're ideologically primed uh, to think about uh, young black men shooting up a neighborhood, or some, there's some image. You know, it's very racialized. We don't think about uh, the Brett Kavanaugh's, uh, right? The Donald Trump. Uh, we're engaged in this, this gender violence uh, as routine, as a matter of course. And, you know, what I appreciated so much about Yuri was that she always um, drew the connections. Uh, you know, she was not, um, Myopic. She didn't. Uh, she 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 was really active in the campaign to free political prisoners. And and um, you know I've said many times I I don't know anyone who wrote as many letters to people in prison as Yuri. Yeah. You know whenever I would see her and she would you know talk about who she was writing I I'd get really embarrassed because I didn't have the time to. You know, to respond to every single letter that I received from a prisoner, but she responded to every single letter a prisoner ever wrote to her. And I think, and when I think that, uh, and I'll talk about the violence issue, but I just, you know, when I when I think about Yuri, she's um, she's such a model uh, for the way we should be in the world. Uh, her politics. Uh, it, it wasn't about towing a party line. A politics came from her heart and, 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 and really wanting to change the world. And she believed that up until the time that she died. And you saw, she was still out there speaking at rallies, you know, when she was in a wheelchair. And she was doing research. Um, and I'll come back to the violence issue in a minute, but I just, I, I, while this is in my head, I just want to point out that, that um, uh, one of the very first times I heard Yuri speak, she had done all of these research, all of this research about various kinds of encounters between um, um, people 
of Africans and people of African descent and Asians. She was really interested in how those uh, connections, the, the sort of um, uh, connections that are never acknowledged, uh, you know, from Bandung on. Uh, uh, and um, yeah, she was, she was really an absolutely amazing uh, person. Now, the issue of the relationship between intimate violence and institutional violence, which is a, which is a feminist insight. And I think that what is very exciting to me about these new youth movements, and I guess, I guess you're a youth if you're under 30, <laughs> although, I've met a lot of people who identify with being a youth and they're well into their 40s. So I guess then the older you get, uh, the older youth gets too. <laughs> but um, but what, what I find so exciting about the ways, the, the, the feminist analyses uh, that they um, develop and the, the connections, uh, the un the insight that there is a relationship between violence that happens in intimate relationships and violence that happens in prisons and violence that is, is perpetrated by the military or by the police. Uh, and in a sense, I was talking about this in your class yesterday, it's, you know, it's almost as if um, men get publicly punished, all the women do as well, but then the, the men are delegated to punish women in more private spaces. Uh, so a lot of that violence happens in, inside relationships, uh, inside relationships that are supposed to be about love. Uh, and if we can't figure out how to deal with that, uh, we'll never be able to imagine uh, a world where people, where human beings can uh, be healthy and, 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 and happy. And I, I think I may have said something like this in class uh, yesterday evening. Um, but the erasure of the contributions that women of color have made to feminist movements uh, has led to um, a sense of, 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 of feminism as being, um, first of all, white. I mean, many people are even afraid to identify with feminism because who do they think about? They think about Hillary Clinton, right? <laughs> and 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 they're, they're and of course she's a feminist, but not the kind of feminist I identify with, <laughs> right? So we're talking about a feminism that is anti-racist, that is anti-capitalist anti-imperialist, and, and so I, I think that um, when one looks, for example, at the campaigns against sexual violence, 
that have been organized by women of color, they look very different. Uh, Yuri was referring to the campaigns for reparation for the so-called comfort women um, in um, Korea. We can think about campaigns um, against, I spoke about um, Rosa Parks and the campaigns against sexual violence inflicted by the Ku Klux Klan, like gang rapes on black women. Um, sexual violence during slavery. We know that slavery was saturated with gender violence. And, and therefore the, 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 the message is that there's something institutional about it. It's not just about bad men attacking women, which is how it looks uh, when it gets represented you know, outside of the context of, uh, of understanding racism and, 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 and class bias. Uh, um, and somehow or another, it gets reduced to pinpointing those individual men who engage in acts of sexual violence, not realizing that you can, you know, you can send Bill Cosby to jail, um, but that's not going to solve the problem. I mean, I'm not saying that 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 perpetrators of gender violence shouldn't be uh, rendered accountable. But we should not be satisfied with simply sending someone to jail. Because prisons are very violent institutions. And so these violent people go into violent prisons, and the violence gets reproduced and increased, and that has an impact on the larger society. The point that I'm making is that if we if we think about the ways in which women of color have conducted campaigns against gender violence, um, we understand that it has to include um, an awareness of the institutional, uh, the structural character of that violence. Uh, you know, I was thinking about the, that, that Dr. Larry Nasser who uh, sexually abused all of those uh, those Olympic gymnasts, uh, hundreds, hundreds, and he didn't do it just because he was a a bad man, which he is. But he had help. He had help. Because many of those girls talked about what the doctor was doing and nobody believed them. And they said, oh, you know, that's just a form of treatment. He's a prominent doctor, the same kind of thing that Donald Trump says about Brett Kavanaugh. That's right, yeah. So I'm, what I'm saying is we would have a very different approach if we took, you know, all of the, what, what what's often called intersectionality, if we developed an intersectional analysis. Mm. You know, first of all, I think it's important to um, um, remember 
that many of these issues have been uh, reconceptualized and reframed as a result of the work of women of color. Um, and so we can't simply be critical of white feminism. Um, we have to take the leadership. The, the women's march that happened, you remember the women's march? that happened after who was elected? Uh, I mean, that was less than two years ago. And that, that was a perfect example of how uh, women of color can assume the leadership. The idea was created by um, one white woman who got in touch with another one. And then, then eventually, um, uh, a, a number of the women of color, you know, including Linda Sarsour, who was a you know Palestinian American black women, said that white women cannot represent all women. You know, even in the way we think about gender, gender has been racialized. So when you use the category women it automatically refers to white women. And that's something really wrong about that. That is not right. White women are in the minority in the world. But this is, I mean, this is how racism works. And it's, a, it's as important for people of color as it is for white people to understand the impact of, 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 of that discursive racism. And, and so uh, a, steering committee was created uh, that consisted of uh, a large number of women of color and it completely transformed the organizing and the issues that were raised at the, the, the women's march. Um, you see, um, I mean, I'm not saying that white women don't play an important role. Uh, you saw pictures of Anne Braden. I don't know if any of you are uh, familiar with Anne Braden, but she was one of my mentors, a white woman born in the South who uh, stood up to the racist in the South at a time when no other white people were doing it. And as a matter of fact, she and her husband Carl, they were connected to the um, family I lived with, there was a section of the film that talked about me living in, in Bed-Stuy with this white family. Uh, 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 Reverend Mellish created this organization called the Southern um, Conference Educational Fund, SCEF, and Anne Braden and her husband Carl were part of it. But Anne and Carl bought a home and turned it in a segregated, in a white community, and turned it over to black people. And Carl ended up being sentenced to the federal penitentiary for doing that. So, so I'm, and what I'm suggesting is that we have to be really conscious about the way in which racism has shaped our, our lives, and the fact that uh, uh, that white people often assume that because they're white, they know better. And people in this country 
U.S. people often assume in relation to the rest of the world that because we are from the United States of America, somehow we know better than other people in the world and that we have nothing to learn from people in Africa and in Latin America. And so I, I think that kind of, that kind of um, consciousness is always important. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, the ways in which issues have been formulated within an intersectional context in relation to um, structures and institutions as well as in relation to our personal lives, that insight, that feminist insight has come from women of color. I think it's really important to look to other countries. And you know, for example, in Brazil, the black women's movement in Brazil is the most vibrant movement in that country. And uh, in the aftermath of uh, the, the coup that uh, kicked Dilma uh, uh, Rousseff out of office, uh, that black women's movement really represents the future of Brazil. And I'm not sure, do you all uh, know Marielle Franco? Any of you know Marielle Franco, uh, who was um, assassinated uh, uh, about, well, not uh, quite a year ago, in March, I think, of last year. And she was this amazing organizer uh, who organized in black communities and LGBTQ communities. And so, and this is getting back to your question about empathy. We have to be attentive to what's going on in other parts of the world. And we have to express solidarity and stand up and stand with our sisters and brothers and comrades. Because if we try to do it alone, believe me, uh, you see what happens when we try to do it alone in the US. You see uh, which in which political direction the country begins to to lead. So, uh, yeah, and I, I, I'm, um, I think we have to make sure that Donald Trump does not serve out his. Uh, mm -hmm. That should be a major goal. And so if we have to go out in the street, do whatever we can, artists need to get involved, everybody gets, everybody who has anything to contribute, and that is literally everyone, has to ask themselves, how can, this is what Yuri did, how can I make uh, my talents um, relevant to uh, uh, changing the world? What, what do I have to offer? And I think if we do that, then there may be some some hope for the country and the world.
And, and, and it's not because it's not because we simply feel we are obligated to offer solidarity to a people struggling uh, across the ocean, but it, it's because there's this there's this deep connection between the Palestinian struggle and the the black struggle. For one, you know, black people black people have been struggling. Black people in the U.S. or in the Western Hemisphere have been struggling for freedom for how many years? For how many decades? For how many centuries? And, and we still haven't given up. I mean, that's actually quite remarkable that we're still, we're, we're, we're still, um, engaged in liberation struggle. And Palestinian people have been struggling for decades and decades and centuries if you go all the way back. Uh, but, but at least since, the, um, since Israel was established in 1948 and they uh, their, uh, their homes uh, were completely um, taken away from them, the evictions and and, and, and the fact that the vast majority of Palestinians were forced outside of uh, the, um, the borders of, of Palestine. So it's really wonderful to see all of these uh, connections. I know that Yuri would be very happy uh, because she was always about you know, making connections uh, between people of, 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 of various cultures and ethnicities and various um, racial backgrounds, and she demonstrates that that black movements. When you say black movements, you're not only talking about black people. You know, for one thing, for one thing, not all black people are embraced by those movements because there are black people who have been on the other side. Um, you know, we've been hearing a lot about Clarence Thomas these days. And, 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 and so I think it's so important for us to think about black movements in this capacious way. Uh, the black radical tradition, um, it's a tradition of black radical, black, you know, cultural, political activism, but many other people have participated in it. Uh, the filmmaker um, um, Helen Kwan and and Crystal Griffin. H Helen Kwan is a Chinese American woman who uh, uh, was trained by uh, Cedric Robinson, who is uh, was an amazing um, you know political scientist and theorist uh, of, of emancipation. He wrote his most well known book is Black Marxism. Uh, and so Helen, well, I always call her HQ, Helen Kwong, but she goes by HQ. Uh, she, she always points out that uh, when she's speaking to young um, Asian American women activists, she tries to point out how important the black radical tradition has been for everyone. And, and how that is the tradition in this country that has 
never given up on freedom, that has never given up on justice, that has never given up on equality. Uh, um, and I should also say that uh, indigenous people, native people, who uh, have been struggling longer than anyone else. Uh, all the rest, all of us are immigrants, forced immigrants or not, except for indigenous people. Thank, Thank you very you. much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.